Welcome to episode 12 of Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In this episode, we begin chapter 6 of Matthew. We will look at the whole chapter except the Lord's Prayer, which we will skip and give its own treatment in the next episode. Chapter 6 continues Jesus' speech to the people of the new society. That speech is often called the Sermon on the Mount, but I've been arguing that it is not a sermon by a religious figure, but a speech by a social revolutionary outlining the ethos of the new society that he calls the Kingdom of Heaven. In this episode, we will look at how Jesus urges his movement to reject the prevailing economic system imposed by the upper classes of the empire in favor of the economic system of mutual aid already present in peasant society. While peasants would often help each other out, they were also influenced by the dominant economic system, the Greco-Roman patronage system, that they were involuntarily subject to. Jesus counsels them not to act like people in that system and to remain faithful to their own peasant traditions. But it wasn't just the peasants and other poor folk of Galilee that Matthew's Jesus speaks to. He speaks also to the people of Matthew's own social class, the more affluent of the movement. Matthew's Jesus calls on them to abandon the patronage system and join in the peasant economy of mutual aid. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 12 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin with Matthew 6, 1-8, and 16-18, skipping the Lord's Prayer. Beware of practicing your justice before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your gifts may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now skipping to verse 16. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, 
for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, to the modern Western reader, it appears that Jesus is merely calling out show-offs who give to the poor, pray, and fast only so that others can see them doing these things. And that is partly what Jesus is doing. But, as our podcast audience will likely expect by now, in its original setting, Jesus' teaching here does much more than that. First of all, the honor-shame context in which all of this happens can help us understand the motivation for the behavior that Jesus addresses in this part of his speech, and it might even help us have a little more empathy for those who were engaging in this behavior. People who gave to the poor, prayed, and fasted in public were doing it to gain honor. You see, honor in the first century Mediterranean world was more valuable than money. It was the most crucial currency of the time. Honor granted access and decided relationships, both of which were extremely important for survival. While some things could be bought in the market, others could only be had through access to the right circles and through relationships with the right people. Even food fell into this category sometimes. While food was often bought in the market by those who did not grow their own crops or raise their own livestock, it wasn't always enough, and the shortfall had to be made up by a benefactor. The benefactor gained honor by providing the food, and the recipients had to show themselves to have sufficient honor to be worthy of the gift, and they also had to give the benefactor the proper amount of honor in return for the food. So, in that sort of a context, gaining honor whenever possible would feel paramount for survival. Each of the three activities that Jesus addresses in this part of his speech would have accrued honor to the person performing them, if they perform them publicly. And that is the part that Jesus prohibits in his movement for a new society. But why? If honor incentivized giving to the poor, and also prayer and fasting, why not let people have their honor, especially if they need it for their own survival? It wasn't like the world that we live in today where we don't need that much honor to survive. While even today a good reputation is crucial for job prospects and business, we don't need it to the same extent that people did in the first century Mediterranean world. For them, it was a matter of survival. It was the currency they depended on. So Jesus better have a good reason for cutting off this source of revenue for his people. The reason that Jesus prohibits public displays of giving, prayer, and fasting to gain honor has to do with how this honor currency worked in another closely related facet of first century Mediterranean economic culture, namely the patronage system. As I alluded to a minute ago, this economic system operated through a network of benefactors called patrons, as well as their clients and brokers. And before I describe how the system worked, I should also mention that it was specifically a Greco-Roman system 
that had more or less been forced on the people of Israel over several centuries of Greco-Roman domination, which may be why Jesus refers to Gentiles several times in this chapter. Now, let me describe a little bit more fully than I already have how the system worked. Since the market did not provide everything needed to survive and thrive in the Greco-Roman world, people had to cultivate relationships with those who could provide what they needed. The provider was called a patron. The recipient of the provision was a client. Also, there were intermediary figures that helped clients access patrons. These people were brokers. Honor was not only the oil that greased the system so that it could work. It was the actual lifeblood of the system. The patron provided goods and services to those beneath him to gain honor. By the way, I'm using all male pronouns here because this system was almost exclusively male. The broker also accrued honor for his services. The client had to have enough honor to be worthy of the gift and then would heap praise and honor on the patron in sufficient quantities and of sufficient quality so that the patron would continue to supply him with the needed or desired provisions. In this way, in theory, everyone got what they wanted and needed. The patron and broker received honor and the client received provisions. Seneca the Younger, a first-century writer and senator, describes the patronage system as a circle of grace and used as an image to illustrate it the image of the three graces, which is an ancient image from Greco-Roman literature of the three daughters of Zeus dancing in a circle. Seneca asks rhetorically, Why do the sisters, hand in hand, dance in a ring which returns upon itself? For the reason that a benefit, passing in its course from hand to hand, returns nevertheless to the giver. To Seneca, the patronage system was a beautiful, graceful dance of honor, gratitude, and provision for everyone. But that was the theory. And as a friend of mine likes to say, in theory, theory and practice are the same. But in practice, theory and practice are often very different. In practice, not everyone was provided for. It is fairly clear that the majority of the population in places like Galilee did not benefit much from this system, even though they were subject to it. Most of them continued to live in dire poverty, and hunger and malnutrition were widespread. The reason for the widespread poverty, hunger, and malnutrition is something that Seneca's poetic theory of the patronage system conveniently leaves out, and that is how the patrons came by all that wealth in the first place. If goods only flowed from the wealthy to the less wealthy, the system would soon deplete itself. So the patronage system as a complete economic model makes no sense. The only way that it could work was due to another, even larger part of the economy that Seneca fails to mention, the not-so-graceful triplet of taxation, debt, and rents. Most of the wealthy people in the first-century Mediterranean world were either in government or tied very closely to government, and they benefited from a crushing burden of taxation that was levied against the common people, 
including the peasants of Galilee. The tax burden could amount to between 40 and 50 percent of the produce of a peasant farmer. Unable to meet this high tax burden, many peasants fell into debt to the same elites that they owed taxes to, and so would end up with an even greater financial obligation to them. Eventually, many peasant farmers sold their land to their creditors to pay back some of the debts and ended up being sharecroppers on their own land, paying rent to the elite landowner. So peasants were making tax, debt, and rent payments to the upper classes of the empire, leaving very little for them to survive on. Any food or other gift given to them by an upper-class patron might help avoid starvation, but it served to maintain a veneer of honor on a highly exploitative and brutal system. Jesus is not merely concerned about his peasant followers competing for honor through giving to the poor prayer and fasting. Jesus is concerned because these activities mimic the patronage system when done publicly. Giving to the poor publicly mimics the role of a patron. Prayer and fasting done publicly mimic the role of a broker. Now, that publicly giving to the poor mimics the role of a patron might be obvious, but the activities of public prayer and public fasting might not be so obvious as to how they mimic the role of a broker. So let me explain. The Greek word used here for prayer signifies a prayer that asks for things. And fasting was also often done to get God to do something. When these things were done publicly, the person doing them was likely asking for something for the community or even the nation. When Jesus mentions prayer in a synagogue, he's not talking about prayer in a religious gathering, but rather prayer in the town gathering. The synagogue was not so much a religious gathering, but a gathering of the town to do business. A prayer in that setting was likely asking for something for the town. To ask for something from a powerful entity that will benefit the town or the nation is to be a broker. Someone doing this publicly wants everyone to know that he is getting something for them, accessing a powerful patron for them, and so he deserves honor for doing it. So even peasants might mimic the very system that kept them in their place while promoting a myth of honor. The hypocrisy that Jesus calls out in this chapter is not only the individual hypocrisy of the person engaging in public acts of patronage and brokerage, but the hypocrisy of the whole system of patronage and brokerage. It pretends to be an honorable system, but it covers up a whole world of violence, brutality, and human suffering. When describing the dance of the three graces to illustrate the patronage system, Seneca says, The beauty of the whole is destroyed if the course is anywhere broken. Jesus here in this speech aims to break up this twisted dance. The new society will not depend on a hierarchical system of patronage. It will provide for its people a different way, which is the subject of what comes next in Jesus' speech. Matthew 6 
19-21 Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. While this may sound like Jesus is merely trying to get his hearers not to love worldly wealth and instead store up some sort of metaphorical treasure in heaven, the language of storing up treasure had more concrete this-worldly reference than that. Carol B. Wilson, in her recent study of food availability in the Roman world of the first century, has shown that the storing up of food was a problem during this period. The wealthy who often received taxes, debt payments, and rent payments in the form of food crops would often store these food crops, waiting for more favorable prices in the market so they could sell the food at maximum profit. This wasn't just speculation. Their withholding of the crops from the market would often cause a spike in food prices. So not only were they storing up food while peasants and other poor folk went hungry, this practice of market speculation and manipulation created food shortages for the common people. Possibly to contrast this cold-hearted and greedy practice by rich people storing up food to increase their wealth, the phrase, store up treasure in heaven, was used during this period to mean giving to the poor or to help neighbors, with the idea that the one giving would then receive help in their own time of need. They were storing up treasure in the form of a community of mutual aid. For example, Tobit 4, 6-11 states, To all who practice justice, give to the poor from your possessions, and do not let your eye begrudge the gift when you do it. Do not turn your face away from anyone who is poor, and the face of God will not be turned away from you. If you have many possessions, make your gift from them in proportion. If you do not be afraid to give according to the little you have, so you will be laying up a good treasure for yourself against the day of necessity. For giving to the poor delivers from death and keeps you from going into the darkness. Indeed, giving to the poor for all who practice it is an excellent offering in the presence of the Most High. And then Sirach 29, 8-13 reads, Nevertheless, be patient with a man in humble circumstances, and do not make him wait for your aid. Help a poor man for the commandment's sake, and because of his need, do not send him away empty. Lose your silver for the sake of a brother or a friend, and do not let it rust under a stone or be lost. Lay up your treasure according to the commandments of the Most High, and it will profit you more than gold. Store up gifts to the poor in your treasury, and it will rescue you from affliction. More than a mighty shield and more than a heavy spear, it will fight on your behalf against your enemy. And then a later rabbinic source reads, My ancestors stored up treasure for this lower world, but I, through giving to the poor, have stored up treasures for the heavenly world above. So, when Jesus counsels his people to store up treasure in heaven, he means give it to those in need, to the poor, to brothers and sisters who don't have enough, so that you will receive aid in your time of need. In other words, mutual aid, the common good, a community of people willing to help each other get through the hard times. That is the heavenly treasure.
After Jesus calls for investment in the common good, in mutual aid rather than the patronage system, he then seems to take a sudden turn into talking about eyes, light, and darkness. Matthew 5, 22 and 23 reads, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, this might seem like a non-sequitur to us, but for the ancients, the eye was the source of light rather than an organ that takes in light. And it could also be a source of greed. A greedy eye was unhealthy, causing darkness where it should cause light. So Jesus is not straying off topic. Rather, he continues to counsel his people to avoid greed, which can infect the whole community, breaking down relationships and the network of mutual aid that sustains them. Jesus continues this theme in Matthew 6, 24-34. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your lifespan? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive after all these things. And indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and its justice, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. While it may seem like Jesus is telling desperately poor peasants not to worry about food and clothing, he is actually reinforcing peasant wisdom and mutual aid. If you've ever spent much time around poor folk, you've likely heard them talk about trusting God daily and you've probably seen them take care of each other to a degree that might stress out a more affluent person. Multiple sociological and psychological studies have shown that poor people are more oriented to the present, more generous with what they have, and in some ways, less anxious about the future. So Jesus here reinforces peasant wisdom, but not just for them. Matthew's Jesus here speaks both to the rich and the poor. Remember, Matthew was from the upper classes. While in the story, Jesus is speaking to his peasant and other poor followers, the audience of the actual gospel in Matthew's time is likely more mixed, including people from the wealthier classes. Matthew's Jesus counteracts the politics of scarcity so common among the wealthy the fear that there won't be enough for everyone so that they've got to grab as much as they can, 
Matthew's Jesus says, Don't worry, there will be enough. Jesus calms the fear of the wealthy and reinforces the ethos of the peasantry, an ethos of trust in God through mutual aid. I say trust in God through mutual aid for two reasons. One, because Jesus has used the phrase, store up treasures in heaven, which means, as we have seen, give to those in need, so that when you are in need, you will also receive aid. And two, Jesus here exhorts his hearers to strive first for the kingdom of God and its justice, and their needs will be met. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as I have been saying, is the new society. In the new society, people will take care of each other without regard to hierarchy, and all needs will be met. And in the new society, as we will see in the next episode, the exploitative practices of the rich will cease. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been Episode 12 of Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.